0: Welcome to the second in the series Music and the BBC. Last time I traced the early history of the BBC from the foundation of the British Broadcasting Company in 1922 under its general manager John Reith. I went on to describe that in the following year the Radio Times began publication and that in 1927 the BBC became the British Broadcasting Corporation with Sir John Reith, as its first Director General, Reith wanted to broadcast, and I quote, all that is best in every department of human knowledge, endeavour, and achievement. And I said that Reith's three pillars were information, education, and entertainment. I stated that in 1927, the BBC took over the proms, that three years later, the BBC Symphony Orchestra was formed under Adrian Bolt and that during the Second World War, the BBC's national and regional programmes were amalgamated and became the home service. I finished when, straight after the war, the forces programme morphed into the light programme, and a year later, in 1946, the third programme was invented. So I left BBC Radio with its light programme, home service and third programme, all serving a listening public that was about to say goodbye to the 78 Shellac record and hello to the vinyl LP. To begin, the first commercial long playing record was released on the 21st of June, 1948. By 1948, experiments in LP technology had been going on for many years. Indeed, by 1931, RCA Victor had developed a disc that spanned 33 and a third times per minute, but, The stylus cut through the vinyl after repeated playing. Not ideal. It was another 17 years before Columbia developed a viable long playing record. ML 4001 was Columbia's first LP release, Mendelssohn's Violin Concerto with Nathan Milstein as soloist and the New York Philharmonic Orchestra under conductor Bruno Walter. Given the time difference, what was happening in Britain as America launched the LP? Well, at 6 p.m., the BBC's third programme was opening up for the evening. It broadcast a recital by the pianist Gonzalo Soriano of 20th century Spanish music. The BBC chorus, a large professional chamber choir, sang an anthem by John Blow and a motet by Bach and there was a recital of chamber music by Beethoven and Vorjac with songs by Arthur Bliss. Finally there was more 19th century chamber music by Weber and Schumann, quite a variety, and three hours of music from six hours of airtime. The home service carried music too. On the 21st of June 1948 there was dance music from Cecil Norman and Harry Davidson, American light music by Morton Gould and Cole Porter, British light music from Anton and his orchestra, music while you work, jazz from Billy Munn, a colourful stylistic mix from Renaissance to modern for two pianos, an orchestral concert for schools of Beethoven, Brahms and Tchaikovsky, this week's composers, Alba and Offenbach, and half an hour of Bizet's Carmen there was also an opportunity to share in the daily service, as well as to hear the conductor Boyd Neal talking about national anthems. Six hours from just under 18. Finally, the light program also broadcast music. Housewives choice, music in your home, music while you work, time for music, at the console, music for you, melody hour, concert hour, band parade, music tapestry, and contributions from Sid Phillips and from the Radio Revellers, eight hours from 15. In summary, the total figures for the 21st of June 1948 were half of the output of both the light programme and the third programme was music, and one third of the home service was music. And that pretty much reflects the ongoing mix of music and speech on the BBC's three radio networks just after the war. The Radio Times, a cutting from which you can see here, was required reading for many radio listeners. It listed schedules and it also carried articles and news bites that explained and justified programming and scheduling. Some listeners also wouldn't be without the other BBC Weekly, The Listener. Its first edition from the 16th of January 1929 is one of my treasured possessions. The listener came to be regarded as the non-political organ of the trio of weeklies that comprised the new statesman to the left and the spectator to the right. Apart from its broadcast related commentary and its famously difficult crossword, the listener was also useful in that it carried transcriptions of certain radio talks. These days it's easy. You listen again on BBC Sounds. In the late 20th century, you slapped on a cassette to record something you wanted to rehear. But in the years prior to that, you revisited programmes by reading their scripts in the listener. Note in the left-hand column, some gramophone recommendations of music heard on the air the previous week. And in the right-hand column, a transcript of a programme by Sir Henry Wolford Davis on the form of music, musical notation and all. Wolford Davis was organist of St George's Chapel, Windsor, and perhaps as importantly, Gresham Professor of Music. Art and culture was part of the reconstruction of post-war Britain, and there was a strong feeling endorsed by the Labour Prime Minister, Clement Attlee, that British people should be given access to the best of culture. The third programme aired only in the evenings, and the BBC's intention was that the programming should be listened to closely in lieu of a visit to the theatre or concert hall. Two and a half million people tuned into the third programme in its early days. But the mass entertainment of the 1950s saw Britain's perceived value of high culture slipping away. In 1953, the Daily Express launched a campaign to scrap the third programme on the grounds that too much public money was being spent on too few people. In 1956 the third program's budget and airtime were indeed reduced. From the 30th of September 1957 the third programme broadcast every day just for three hours between 8pm and 11pm and before that each day there were two hours of so-called Network 3. Network 3 broadcast programs of educational and minority interest. So what were those minority interests? Bridge, motoring, gardening, amateur dramatics, learning a foreign language, cycling and fishing, to name just a few. And because LP collecting was perceived to be one of those minority interests, Network 3 is where record review was scheduled presented by John Lade. Look above the smiling Eric Robinson, who incidentally went on to be musical director of the Eurovision Song Contest in 1960 and 1963. And you'll see record review in network three. Intriguingly, at the end of the path it says, light music and continental cabaret will not be forgotten. Sadly, I think they have been. At the heart of record review since 1957 has been its building a library strand, where a reviewer surveys all of the available performances of a chosen work in order to make a recommendation for an addition to the listener's record collection. In gloriously predictable, canonic fashion, the first subject of building a library in 1957 was the Fifth Symphony of Beethoven when the conductor Trevor Harvey chose Otto Klemperer's then recent version with the Philharmonia Orchestra. In a satisfying turn of events, that same Klemperer Philharmonia recording was Stephen Johnson's historic choice half a century later on the programme's 50th anniversary edition in 2007. John Lade presented exactly 1,000 editions of record review and his last was broadcast on the 24th of October, 1981. John Lade took Record Review from the last gasp of the 78 record all the way up to the eve of the CD revolution. While programmes like Record Review delighted in employing specialists to explain to listeners what music they should like and why they should like it, other programmes left it to the listeners themselves. On the Light program, Housewives Choice, Children's Favorites and Family Favorites turned the choice of music over to the network's listeners. For some of you, these signature tunes might hit a nostalgic nerve. The third programme's answer to children's favourites was The Young Idea, a record request programme designed for the under-20s. It began in 1965, introduced by Derek Parker, and within a month, the music critic and radio producer Stephen Walsh had written, When The Young Idea first took the air in March, it might have turned into just one more request programme. The fact that this hasn't happened is both chastening and gratifying. Young people are, of course, always eager to identify themselves with the new and that in a real spirit of inquiry. And already several have requested works that they admit they've never heard. Most intriguing of all is the incidence of 20th century works. Music by Stravinsky, Britton, Shostakovich and Roberto Gerhardt has been requested repeatedly. Unfashionable composers like Vaughan Williams and Sibelius as well as semi-fashionable ones like Bartók figure prominently in the lists and recent records of music by Bax and Tippett already have their vehement advocates. In the mid 1960s without the internet, there was much less immediate access to recorded music than there is now. You either owned recordings or you borrowed them. Another way was to write to the BBC with a request. The icing on the cake was the chance for a young person to have their name read out on the radio. And if your request was played, then you might have a friend who could record your request on their newfangled cassette recorder. Music cassettes had been introduced in 1963 by Philips. The main advantage of cassettes over records was that cassettes could record as well as replay, whereas records were repro only. Here are a couple of mine. The young wannabe violinist asked for Vivaldi's Four Seasons for his 12th birthday. Whereas the teenage wannabe composer asked for a tonne of blank cassettes for his 16th birthday, so that he could record Stockhausen, Boulez, and Xenakis off Radio 3. But however dewy-eyed I may get over outmoded media, I still regularly play my vinyl records, but very rarely my cassettes. Back to the young idea that started on Network Three and ran from 1965 until 1979. It was latterly presented by the harpsichordist, Christopher Hogwood. Hogwood had been a member of the early music consort of London and had known the ensemble's founder director, David Munro, since their Cambridge University days at the start of the 1960s. Munro's appearance on Radio 3 were even more charismatic and appealing than Hogwarts. Munro presented his own show, Pied Piper, four times per week, and it ran from 1971 to 1976. Pied Piper was subtitled Tales and Music for Younger Listeners, and those listeners were ostensibly between the ages of six and 12. In the event, the target audience became teenagers, although research showed that the average listener was 29 years old, like all the best children's programmes. Pied Piper focused on one theme per week, of which one episode per week was an interview. In the second week of October 1974, for instance, the theme was Babylon, So, as the composer of the 1931 Cantata Cum Oratorio Belshazzar's Feast, which ends with the fall of Babylon, Sir William Walton was the interviewee.
1: Sir William Walton has lived for many years now in Ischia in the Bay of Naples, but on a recent visit to London, he talked to me about his life and work. And I first asked him, w- were you determined to be a composer at that well, stage? I couldn't do anything else, actually, as a matter of fact. I, mean, I don't know what would have happened if I had been tried on or something else. I don't know. I might have been succeeded as a bank clerk. I don't know. <laughs> well, of the many recordings of your works, I wonder if you'd like to choose one. Is there any artist, for instance, who you think uh, particularly understands what you've written intuitively without having to be told? Well, I think Andre Previn has, I mean, I never met him till well, long after he'd done the recording of the First Symphony, which he got right, really, more or less on his own. He always got the little nuances without sort of being told about them.
0: Here is that 1966 recording of Walton's First Symphony. I bought this LP in 1977 having seen Andre Previn's studio performance with the London Symphony Orchestra on BBC Two. It was made for Walton's 75th birthday. I made a 300 mile round trip to buy this record so that I could have it there and then. It's what you did before click and collect. And from that moment to this, it remains my favorite recording of any music bar none. Pied Piper ran for five series and a total of 655 episodes. David Munro's death on the 15th of May 1976 at the age of 33 shocked the musical world. Munro had packed more musical exploration and innovation into a third of a century than most others do in an entire lifetime as a teacher, performer and broadcaster. Monroe embodied the Wreathian principles of information, education, and entertainment. His Pied Piper programs sounded authoritative, but relaxed. Actually, Monroe found their compilation anything but relaxing. According to Pied Piper producer Arthur Johnson, Pied Piper was a big strain on me as well as David. He was obsessive and he was driven He was a perfectionist and he wanted to do everything himself. He would be setting up LPs on the grams decks and finding the right groove, though it was someone else's job. One of BBC Radio's most cherished institutions is a request show that was broadcast originally on the BBC Forces programme during the Second World War. Desert Island Discs was devised and first presented by Roy Plumley. The requests were not those of the public, but of Plumley's celebrity so-called castaways. Castaways are allowed to take eight recordings with them to their desert island. The most chosen band has been the Beatles and their favourite song, Yesterday. The most popular composer, Mozart. The Marriage of Figaro, his most requested work. Plumley was a gently spoken and well researched interviewer who made his celebrities feel enough at home to bring something of their true selves to the programme. Indeed, the soprano, Elizabeth Schwarzkopf, brought an awful lot of herself to the show. Do you have much time
2: to play records in, in ordinary life?
1: No, not really. You know, uh, when we are making those records, we listen to them so many times that once they are finished, we have no time ever to listen to them again, and that's what I want to do when I'm on the desert island.
2: Oh, with your husband and executive of Gramophone Record Company, there must be plenty of records in your home.
1: I should think there are. I think we have about uh, 10,000.
2: 10,000. All (laughs) those riches and you can't play them. No. (laughs) Oh, so what what is your plan of campaign? They're mostly your own records that you haven't really had a chance to rehear, is that?
1: Oh, and... great artists which I haven't had the chance to hear and which I would like to hear really for the first time in my life. Mm. What's the first one you've chosen? Well, I'm afraid I will stick to my own records for once because I will like to relive my life surely as I have lived with very many wonderful artists and colleagues.
0: All eight choices on the 28th of July, 1958 were Schwarzkopf's own recordings. Although with some magnanimity, Schwarzkopf made her eighth record, the introduction to Richard Strauss's Dear Rosenkavalier, the very opening of the opera in which there's no actual singing. The full complement was achieved on the 31st of July, 1979 by Maura Limpany. This was the pianist's second appearance on Desert Island Discs. Her first had been in 1957. What was your plan in choosing these eight records for your Desert Island?
1: Well, when I started, I chose a number of records which I love very much, and then I realised that they were practically identical to the ones that I had chosen when I believe I came to you 22 years ago and did Desert Island. Yes, indeed. And I thought, this is really going too far to have practically the same records again. And then I thought, well, since I'd be on an island, on presumably on my own, I would be looking back on my life... I would reminisce about the fifty years of concert giving that I had, and I thought wouldn't it be nice to reminisce with my own records instead?
0: You've chosen a programme of your own, of my recordings. own
1: recordings, yes.
0: Limpany chose her own performances for all eight records, as well as choosing wine from her own vineyard as her luxury. She did not, however, make her autobiography her choice of book, perhaps only because she didn't publish it until over a decade later. However, several guests have chosen their own autobiographies, not least the jazz legend Louis Armstrong in 1968. Even longer running than Desert Island Discs is Coral Edensong. 95 years old this coming autumn, Coral Edensong began life on the national programme before being subsumed into the home service, thence to Radio 4. In April 1970, Coral Edensong moved to Radio 3 and became monthly rather than weekly. It took a couple of months and two and a half thousand letters of complaint for the BBC to reinstate Coral Edensong's weekly status. Coral Edensong may not have a large audience, but it has a fervent and a dedicated one. A year after that ill-fated BBC decision to mess with its listeners, Choral Song made its first stereo broadcast on the 17th of March, 1971 from Gloucester Cathedral. I first appeared on Choral Song on the 5th of July, 1972 as a treble in the choir of Litchfield Cathedral. Patricia Hughes was the announcer with her legendary so-called Kensington voice. Choral evensong today comes from Lichfield Cathedral, and the
1: anthem is "O oh, give thanks unto the Lord" by Wesley.
0: The 30th of September, 1967, the BBC's radio networks had split into four. The light programme launched on the 29th of July, 1945 was split into radios one and two. This caused some excitement within the corporation, but it was a nostalgic moment too. The task of closing the light programme fell to Roger Moffat.
2: Well, there we end broadcasting in the light programme, not just for today, but uh, as it seems forever. The light programme that is, as it's known now is closing down. But in only a few hours' time, the BBC with Paul Hollingdale will open up on 247 metres and 1500 metres and VHF. That's at half past five. And then at seven o'clock on 247 metres, Tony Blackburn will open and swing into our new Radio 1 network. We hope you'll be with us, not only at half past five, but if you like uh, pop music, as it should be played and uh, should be introduced, in this case with Tony Blackburn, then uh, switch over or switch on to 247 at seven o'clock. That leaves me with uh, a rather sad time, to tell you. It's uh, three minutes past two o'clock, and uh, Paul will be back, and Tony will be on for the very first time in the morning. Roger off at this end hoping that everything your end will be just as you would like it to be. With the time now at three and a half minutes past two, good night to you and good morning.
0: Tony Blackburn was the first Radio 1 DJ to air. Here's announcer Robin Scott, launch controller of Radios 1 and 2, giving the countdown to the opening of Radio 1. There's a palpable buzz here. Radio 2 was a rough continuation of the light programme, but Radio 1 was new and sounded like it. But
2: now with the clock ticking slowly up to 7am, it's going to be time to welcome Radio 1's first daily show on 247 metres medium wave, whilst Breakfast Special continues on Radio 2. Ten seconds to go before Radio 1, Tony Blackburn, and Radio 2, Paul Hollingdale, stand by for switching, get tuned to Radio 1 or 2, 5, 4, 3, Radio 2, Radio 1, go. The voice of Radio 1, just for
1: fun, music, too
2: much, and good morning everyone, welcome to the exciting new sound of Radio 1. Welcome to the first of the Tony Blackburn Chairs. I shall be waking up every morning except Sunday between 7 and 8.30, so
0: let's away. Blackburn didn't like hard rock, for which his playlists were sometimes criticised. Other criticism, which was outside Tony Blackburn's control, was that there was too much speech on Radio One. This was because needle time, the amount of music that was taken from commercial gramophone records, was limited to 51 hours per week over the entire BBC, just over seven hours per day. This legislation was negotiated by the Musicians Union and Phonographic Performance Limited. The MU and PPL were encouraging the BBC to make its own recordings of bands and classical groups. And because the amount of commercially recorded music played on Radio One was limited by needle time, there was a lower music to speech ratio than listeners had been used to from Tony Blackburn on the pirate stations, Radio Caroline and Radio London. The first song played by Blackburn on Radio One should really have been the number one in the pop charts. That week, the top 20 included Stevie Wonder, Jimi Hendrix, the Bee Gees, the Beach Boys, Cliff Richard and Tom Jones. So the expectation might have been the number one would be a belter. But actually a number one, as he had been for four weeks, was Engelbert Humperdinck with The Last Waltz. Uh- Tony Blackburn couldn't open Radio 1 with that. Engelbert would have been a better partner to Julie Andrews, who was going out on Radio 2 at that moment. So the first song played on Radio 1 was the number three that week, Flowers in the Rain by The Move. Where were the fab four when you needed them? Well, the Beatles were at number 27 with All You Need Is Love, which was just about to drop out of the charts after 12 weeks, three of those at number one. And here is that single. Pop albums like classical music were issued on 12-inch LPs running at 33 and a third revolutions per minute. But pop singles were released on seven-inch records that ran at 45 rpm. On the classical music front, the third programme and network three became radio three and the home service became radio four. Here's the close down of the home service from announcer David Dunhill. This is David Dunhill and this is the end of the home service for today
1: and for all days In one sense, I suppose, we're like a bride on the eve of her wedding. We go on being the same person, we hope, but we'll never again have the same name. Tomorrow, at 6.35am, we become Radio 4. So, goodbye, home service. Two of the best words in the British language. And still, I'm sure, the only answer you can give to the question, what is Radio 4? Two more words we
0: shan't erase. Good night. Apart from beaming music across the airwaves, the BBC is also a proprietor of many performing groups. After the Second World War, the BBC ran a symphony orchestra, northern orchestra, Welsh orchestra, Scottish orchestra, theatre orchestra, review orchestra, dance orchestra, variety orchestra, Scottish variety orchestra, and Midland Light Orchestra, as well as the BBC Singers, BBC Choral Society, and BBC Welsh Chorus. Over the next two decades, some of these groups were renamed and were joined by the Northern Ireland and West of England Light Orchestras, the Northern Variety Orchestra, the Northern Singers, the West of England Players, and the new BBC Orchestra. In addition to those traditional combinations of instruments, from April 1958, the BBC engaged in creating entirely new sounds from its radiophonic workshops. Daphne Orham was given technical assistance by Desmond Briscoe and Dick Mills. Madalena Fangandini brought pop techniques to the Radiophonic Workshop, and she was later joined by Kenneth Worsley and Delia Derbyshire. Here's a signature tune that Derbyshire wrote for a talk show in 1964 called Talk Out.
2: as
1: yes, well uh, well you know yes i have kids and um well, well speaking personally, personally i i feel that talk out talk out talk out talk, out, talk, out, talk, talk out. out
0: what the workshop did very creatively was to mix natural sounds treated electronically with synthesizers Such montages, contemporary musical happenings in themselves, suited radio of the early 1960s. Here's Derbyshire's signature tune for Science and Health, a sex education programme. Derbyshire's sig tune was actually rejected by the producer who commissioned it for being too lascivious. And it is a bit physical, visceral indeed, and intentionally so. (laughs) Derbyshire had been refused employment at Decca Records on the grounds that women weren't allowed to work in their recording studios. Fortunately, the BBC had been employing women in studios for years, and consequently, Derbyshire was allowed to compose some astonishingly individual and effective incidental music for the BBC over the next decade. Other weird and wonderful sounds were heard on Music In Our Time, which began on the 26th of March, 1965 piloted through choppy seas by its producer, Stephen Plaistow. Contemporary music in the mid 20th century played havoc with the expectations of music lovers. Some tolerated music in our time as an hour of faintly amusing oddity, but some felt violated by its very existence. Much contemporary music was seen as at best a confidence trick and at worst unmusical, indeed anti-musical. The explanatory announcements also came in for criticism as being dense and complicated. In the early 1970s, Stephen Plaistow responded, the presentation of contemporary music is a problem that will always be with us. I don't want to sound defeatist, but it will. Please don't let's talk down to them. When listening to a cricket commentary, I don't expect the commentator constantly to remind me what over the wicket means or what a leg spin bowler is. Next time someone tells you that modern music is a confidence trick, tell him to go and get himself educated, perhaps by listening regularly to music in our time. Education had been the second of the three pillars of Lord Reith's vision, information, education and entertainment. Indeed, the BBC was proud of its position as one of the nation's educators. But for some Radio 3 critics, Auntie's attitude was more akin to preaching and snobbery than enlightened instruction. Yet, however it was branded, there was an educational element to much of BBC Radio's music output, whether it was weekly fare like Humphrey Littleton's Jazz Record Requests or Music Magazine, or the daily outings of this week's composer, or the drive time program homeward bound. Those over 50 may remember the earworm that was the homeward bound sig tune. that signature tune itself tells a story. It's a Baroque pastiche by an early 20th century composer played in an unreconstructed way. It strikes me that these days, were I to perform that signature tune now, I would do so subconsciously by encouraging a performance style from the players suggested by the techniques of playing Baroque period instruments, in spite of the fact that Respighi was not himself imagining that sound. The point is a wider and more obvious one. BBC Radio has affected not just the canon of musical composition, but also our attitude towards performance practice. The hook of Homeward Bound was that it didn't identify the works played until the very end of each of its two segments. That technique suited two groups of people, those who didn't care to be talked at and just wanted to listen to classical music, let's say on the drive home from work, and the other group which wanted to stretch itself and see if its members could work out the identity of the composers for themselves. This latter idea had been pioneered by composer Robert Simpson, whose programme, The Innocent Ear, had begun on the 2nd of November, 1959. The Radio Times described the innocent ear as, a program designed to enable the listener to approach music without preconceptions. Although the works are not identified until after they have been heard, the program is not intended as a guessing game. The object is to let the listener judge the quality of the music without previous knowledge. That said, for some listeners, the innocent ear was indeed, a guessing game. Mm. And some of those listeners also enjoyed listening to the opposite approach, where a work was analysed in loving detail by the pianist and composer Anthony Hopkins without hearing the work in its entirety. Talking About Music was first broadcast on the 26th of September, 1954. Hopkins had a feel for radio. Indeed, He had the distinction of having once achieved a pre-Reformation radio full house. That's to say, appearing simultaneously on the light programme, the home service and the third programme. Hopkins had a knack of taking technical matters and making them intelligible, aided and abetted by helpful illustrations at the piano. And he'd do talking about music live and adjust the script as he went along according to the time. Here he is talking about Beethoven's Emperor Concerto. Some
1: time ago, the leader of one of the foremost orchestras in England went around winning a lot of bets about the opening chord of Beethoven's Fifth Piano Concerto. All sorts of people who should have known better, including, I'm ashamed to say myself, sat down at the piano at his behest and played this chord. Now let's play the right one on a record. Unless you actually know the difference, I don't suppose you'd spot it. The orchestral chord is most unusual in that it has no fifth in it. Instead of this... ...it's this. Now, I don't think there's any deep significance about this, but it's just one of those little details that are worthy of comment, because it shows a composer establishing a particular sound as his own.
0: There, Hopkins is addressing you, just you. He invokes a famous person without name dropping. He makes things mundane. There's a bet going on. He admits his own ignorance. He says that his observation maybe doesn't really matter. Reverse psychology. And he's not afraid to talk about the technical aspects of the music. Crucially, the score is center stage even though in this case it's just a single chord. The overall effect is that he makes you feel comfortable but drawn in. And all that is achieved in under one minute without patronising the listener in any way. Sadly, the LP era of music at the BBC ended with some of the most unpleasant scenes of the corporation's history. In 1980, the BBC announced significant cuts that would result in the closure of five of its 11 orchestras. The Musicians' Union called a strike, which had the effect of cancelling 20 of the prom's concerts that year, including the first night. The strike also caused certain music presenters and producers to withhold their services, one of whom was Anthony Hopkins. In the event, three of the BBC's dance orchestras were disbanded. Midland, Northern and Scottish radio orchestras. The proms eventually started up on the 7th of August, almost three weeks late. The rancour of the dispute between the BBC and the Musicians Union has not been forgotten by any of those involved. I went to my first prom in that very year, 1980. As a student I didn't have much disposable income so I opted to stand in the gallery I was impressed at how quickly the distant stage filled my feel of vision and my ears, and I loved the informality of it all. And having been there once, I thereafter had a vision of how things looked and felt in the Royal Albert Hall. And it was enough to listen to a prom on the radio for that image to accompany my listening. I'd been fascinated by BBC Radio since I'd sung on Choral Evensong when I was 11. As a child, I rather obsessively built crystal sets and transistor radios, and I became fascinated with all aspects of radio, its transmission, reception, and content. That 1980 proms visit clinched it for me, and I resolved to apply for one of the BBC training courses when I left full-time education. And that radio in the digital era is where I'll begin next time. Thank you.